So let's get into today's message. And uh, last minute this morning, the Lord kind of laid an example on my heart, and I shifted from my uh, introduction I had to, to this. Everybody that, that attends regularly, you know I've given plenty of examples. I, I was in the Navy for a very short time. And I don't believe you have to be in the military very long at all to learn that it's about discipline. But you know what's interesting about it is discipline, they do it in such a way that a lot of times they don't have to lay a finger on you to get you to do things that you really don't want to do. Things that are painful, things that are not fun, that you don't want to do, right? Right? That boot camp and other things, they could do it. You know, because they spent decades figuring out ways to motivate you in a way to do things that are good for you, but you just don't recognize them, but you need it. See, the thing is about discipline is awfully har- often hard for you because you need it. When you don't need it, you're usually the one bringing the discipline. So let's use the example of a parent. You know, dads, moms, you know, your kids don't always like being told what to do. Don't touch the hot stove. But I want to. But, you know, that, that's the thing. They don't like the discipline. But how many of you in your, in your 20s or your 30s all of a sudden started realizing your parents must have been staying up all night reading over those years because they all of a sudden got smart? Like all the things you thought they didn't know, all of a sudden when you get to your 20s and 30s and 40s, your parents just all of a sudden get wiser. Like they finally wised up. No, what it is is you finally got smart enough to recognize that they had wisdom, things they were telling you. You know what the definition of wisdom is? It's learning from others' mistakes instead of having to learn by making the mistake yourself. Learning and doing the right thing by other people's mistakes is wisdom and not doing it. Trial, trial by fire is when you have to touch the stove and learn the hard way. Well, John MacArthur wrote that you and I spend 50% of our time thinking about money, how to get it, how to spend it, how to save it, and how much we need to pay for different things. Now, if Dave Ramsey says you're spending 20% of your time at work thinking about it on average, that means your free time, you're still spending 30% of that thinking of your money if you're spending 50% total. So if if we spend that much much time thinking about money, and obviously it's very important to us, then, then wouldn't you think we'd be experts by now? I mean, if you learn to ride a bicycle with more practice, you get to be really good, right? And then guys that put more practice in, if they get on a BMX bike, you know, and they start doing the tricks, then next thing you know, you see them on, that's actually, a, makes it on TV now, you know. Used to, that was just kids at a park spinning their, their tires thinking they're cool. And now, you know, people improve and improve until it becomes spectacular and it gets a lot of attention. But with money, it seems like we can handle it and handle it and handle it, but it, time and practice doesn't always equal excellence when it comes to money. It seems that there's another principle there that we have to learn. And, you know, uh, financial author Ron Blue has called our attention to to some facts. Some of these I've mentioned before, some not. But 60% of couples in marital counseling say money is the problem. They haven't figured out it's them yet, but they're saying it's money. Money is a problem. Um, 80% of Americans owe more than they own. 85% of Americans at age 65, this blew me away, have not even saved $250 at age 65. That means if you have a couple tires blow out on your car, you're probably having to pull out the credit card. Only 2% of Americans are financially independent at age 65, and the other 90% of Americans depend on relatives or seek help from charities to continue to work or to survive. And no wonder people are worried about uh, Social Security drying up. But do you think if maybe we handled money God's way, we would really need Social Security? 
if we had been all along? The average American churchgoer does not tithe, which tithe means 10%, does not give what the biblical 10% says, but they give 2.5%. That's the average. 2.5% of their income to the work of, of God through the church. And that is exactly why I can believe the statistics then that the church of America is actually in decline. The church abroad is increasing in many areas. Churches are folding because they simply can't sometimes pay the bills. Now, I'm, I'm a believer, like I was taught, that the church does not need your money. God is the provider of the church. But we give out of obedience. We give because that's what the Lord has instructed us to do. We do it as worship. And so uh, God's pretty smart. He also knows the church needs to operate on resources. And so through that worship, he also provides for the church. But, you know, because we spend so much of our time and energy thinking about money, earning it, spending it, fighting over it, and because we handle it so poorly, God actually talks a lot about money in the Bible. In fact, it's the second most talked about topic other than love in the Bible. See, when I start seeing that, that that convicts my spirit as a pastor, as a shepherd, that I'm not talking to you enough about it. Here, here I made the comment to one of the uh, volunteers that, uh, that works a lot here at the church. I said, man, I'll be glad when it's done. I just I get so nervous about preaching about money, you know, or stewardship. It's just not fun, you know. And I, I regret saying that because really I should want to. If, if God spoke about it so much, we should want to talk about this. Figure it out. Not, not for me to tell you what I think about it, but what does God say about it? The Bible has over 2,350 references to money and the management of money. And here's this. A lot of people now in, in today's dialogue about people who are trying to challenge Christians of if we really know what we're talking about, they'll bring up, did Jesus even talk about that topic? Well, get this. Of Jesus' 38 parables, 16 deal with money. One out of every ten verses in the Gospels has to do with money or possessions. A, a total of 288 verses. And, it, and again, it's been said that Jesus talked uh, more about money than any other topic with the exception of love. Only beat out by the topic of love. One of the major financial themes discussed in God's Word is giving. Now this is where it gets really uncomfortable. It's one thing for me to tell you how God wants you to handle your money wisely and for you to be able to live better your life once you leave these doors. But then, because we've already done that through the series, but now I switch gears, I start talking about what you give to God, which, oh, here comes the part where pastors start saying, oh, I need to give more in the offering plate. But you know, um, again, this applies to me too. You know, we, we've had to build into our budget structure to not only give tithe but give offering because I gravitate towards being stingy and I have to tell myself if I'll discipline myself and give some automatically, then maybe it's easier for the Holy Spirit to speak to me in a mission service or something and say, hey, you need to put more in, you know? And me, and me not to say, Jen, quit nudging me. Oh, that wasn't you. God talks so much about giving because he knows that you and I will never get the, re the, the rest of our financial house in order until we get our giving straightened out. And in talking to his people about money, God is not shy. He doesn't beat around the bush on this. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush, but he didn't, he didn't have a bush when it came to the money. He just said, this is how it is. He doesn't pull any punches. He tells it like it is. Um, so this morning, I want us to turn to Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. To, to look at some hardcore truth. So remember what I was talking about, about discipline. It's uncomfortable and all. You tell your kids 
what's best for them. This is your heavenly father, your, your heavenly daddy, giving you a little bit of hard talk, okay? Tough love. Are, are you on board with me? Nobody's going to run out the door and get their burger early and leave. So, okay. So Malachi uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Um, God confronts in this passage the people of Israel about their giving and, and uh, what he said to them applies in many ways to us today. So um, let's read it. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In the tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the, Lord, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 12, it ends with this. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be delight, a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You see, um, I will tell you some of the resources I used in this series uh, when it came to this part, uh, it, will, it, it mentioned many times that if you give to God, you can expect a financial blessing. I'm not going to teach that to you because I've learned the difference in, in God's blessing from what man thinks blessing is. You know, when Jen and I got married, it wasn't that long after that, we were looking at how much debt we had in school loans and we thought, good grief, it's going to be into our retirement age. We'll still be paying on this. And God, how are we going to ever do ministry? You know, that was still on the radar. And then all of a sudden we found out we're having twin boys. Well, first I found out we're having a baby. And we didn't cry happy tears, I hate to say. But we found twin boys, and we got excited. We, we did. And we, but you know what? It's because I was still uh, mulling around, not letting God completely take control, thinking I had to have control. And I couldn't recognize the blessing he was bringing because we were already setting our sights on being disciplined and faithful with biblical principles. Those twin boys were a bigger blessing than if I'd won the, the whatever that is, the, the million-dollar bubble, pop, pop your bubble, uh, Powerball whatever that is. <laughs> those, those boys were more valuable than the $1 billion, whatever it finally reached. So I'm not going to talk to you today about you expect financial blessings when you give to God. You need to be good with God has a blessing for you that is beyond measure and whatever he sends your way, he's going to be faithful because you have been faithful. As I mentioned, God's not shy about talking about money. In today's passage, Malachi 3, 7-12, we learn that when we return to God with obedience and giving, He will return to us a blessing. And God, God confronts with us two challenges regarding our giving. And one, He's very clear, He says, we are robbing God when we are disobedient in our giving. That's hard medicine to take. If you have been here or any other church and that offering plate has passed and you know you've not tithed, I'm not doing this for my benefit. I'm not doing this to be harsh to you. But you look at this scripture, and if you've been doing your Bible study and you come across this, then all of a sudden we're confronted with the fact that I have robbed God. I remember how scary that was as a kid. I mean, my mom up there with the little black light and the felt people up there, and, you know, I don't think that it was robbing God's story. But anyway, it, it was a nice visual. But, you know, I learned that as a kid. I learned that as a kid that, that you were robbing God, and it was hard pill to swallow. 
But then again, do we really want to be a bunch of spoiled brats? How many is really thankful about the way our generations are going now because everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes? Where's the discipline? Where's the training? Where's, where's the things that we enjoyed, the blessings of God we enjoyed because we had the discipline of, of the Gospels in the majority of lives in this nation? You know, the first thing we need to realize from this is that we're robbing God when we are disobedient or giving. And Malachi teaches us uh, some important truths. One is, first, robbing God is a terrible act. Um, the Lord asked in verse 8a, will man rob God? And this is a rhetorical question for, for shock, but it's no less uh, truthful and important. It's factual, truthful, important, but, but the way it's stated, it was made to get their attention. Call them thieves. Will you rob God? For a man to rob God, whom, whom owns his very existence, and, uh, you know, and every good gift that he gives and enjoys in life, it's unthinkable. And if we're guilty of robbing God in our giving, we have committed a terrible sin. And the second thing we have to see from this is that, that many of God's people are, are regularly robbing him because he says so. The Lord says in verse 8b, yet you rob me. This was in this context of this scripture, this was an ongoing regular practice by God's people. You know, he, he had to say, bring the whole tithe in. Because there are some that are saying, hey, yeah, this is what I consider the tithe. You know, I'm going to change, like I talked about Dave Ramsey. I know this is the plan. I know this is what's good, but I, I, th- I think I've got a little better idea. What took place several thousand years ago ha- has not stopped because we see it with the decline of churches and churches closing doors over finances. But, but many of God's people at this time and, and in our nation still are robbing God. And believers who rob God are like a mugger who robs the same victim repeatedly. It's like kicking a dog when down, you know? It's like going and hitting the same person over and over. I mean, that's one thing to be a thief, but man, let up a little, you know? Uh, imagine how God feels. He's not a dog. God is not uh, a poor little person. He is the God Almighty. But it's like that mugger would just keep hitting that same person again. Enough is enough. If you're going to be evil, spread it, I guess, a little or something. <laughs> but don't, don't keep beating the same person. But the people of God rebelliously sneered at this question that God posed. And they said, how do we rob you? Can you imagine we do that? But can you imagine in the face of God, he's making the statement. He's not asking the question. He's saying, you rob me. How do we rob you? Their spiritual insensitivity and rebellion against God caused them to, to forget God's commands to give tithes and offerings. He had already made it clear. And we may be robbing God without even being aware of it, but it still holds us responsible, even if we're not aware. You know, um, the thing is, is God has created us to worship him in many ways, and giving is, is one of them. I mean, our guilt may be less than the person who already knows the, the teaching and yet disobeys, but nevertheless, we're still guilty of robbing God. It's a hard concept to grasp. We're, we're in a nation where we demand fairness. Well, at least we think we do. We demand fairness. So, so how can a loving God, how can he say that well, we're robbing him if we didn't even realize it? Well, because he's already put it there for us to read. See, our disobedience sometimes goes all the way back to the fact that we've rejected the fact that we knew that there is a, a, a God, there is a Bible who talks of God who created the universe. And we reject that truth. We don't want to read it and find out. And so at that moment, we are even robbing God. See, the word tithe literally means a tenth. Some may say, well, well, how much is a tithe? Well, it's a tenth. You know, if it's $100, tithe is $10, $10 of that. 
So as um, you study the text of Scripture, you can also discover from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, there were in fact three annual tithes in effect. There are three different types of tithe. And what this is going to teach us is that we focus on money, but it's really even more than that. So the first one was the Levites tithe. You see the nation... Uh, the nation of Israel, they're divided into 12 tribes, and the Levites were ones that had not received land as an inheritance. They were the priests. So they were the preachers or the pastors of the, the priests. So, so their inheritance basically was the tithe from the other tribes went to them to support the ministry. So that was a Levite's tithe that supported basically their ministers. And then... Then we go on, um, and that we find that in Numbers 18, 20 through 21, it says, The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as, as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. And then the, the second tithe was the festival tithe, and this was the tithe brought to the central sanctuary appointed by God. And the purpose was, uh, of this was really to bring, uh, to, to stimulate devotion to the Lord and unity among the people. It was kind of what we do when we take up the offering plates here, you know, and, and there's ministries. Maybe we'll do a uh, food pantry for a while or we'll, like rural, rural compassion where we, we uh, gave trauma kits, we gave active shooter trauma kits to the police department here, different things like that. So that's where we bring, as to bring unity and we're all going on in the same accord to reach the same goal. But, and that we find in Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 7, where it says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes uh, and put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go, and there bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts. gifts. What you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Then there's a third um, way, a third type of tithe, and it was a tithe of the poor. Uh, this would be most similar to if we took up a benevolence fund, what we call it. So there's a need that I know about. Someone is in desperate need, and the church comes together for someone who, who has nothing. Or, or is in desperate situations, uh, de desperate situations. It, it really focuses in, uh, I've talked to some pastors who, when the way they handle that, and this is coming straight from a, a very respectable pastor who, who does very well with his ministry and, um, and very uh, good Bible teacher. And they actually, one of his questions is, if, if there's an able-bodied man wor working age that can work, provide family, they, they focus more on widows, orphans, and those who cannot provide for themselves. And so it, it follows along with this because if we look, Deuteronomy 14, 28, 29 says, At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the aliens, the, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you all the, the, all the work your, of your hands. So this, this was a tithe for the poor uh, to be able to provide for them. But then there's, even though there's this resounding message of the 10%, the tithe, on what God is saying, this is a requirement of giving. And, and again, I'm going to get to the New Testament, but the Old Testament, 
uh, under the old covenant is saying this 10%, but then we see now offerings or free will giving were given to God in gratitude for his blessings over and above the tithes. So he was instructing them to go beyond that. Exodus 25, 1 through 2 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. Again, this doesn't refer to their tithes. It was whatever they were willing to give from their hearts. So this wasn't a set allotted amount or even a guideline of how much. That is where the Holy Spirit spoke to their hearts. God spoke to their hearts, and each man had to determine what God was saying to give. So we see a structured amount of percentage. We see, we see then um, an additional amount out of the, what's spoken to the heart. And this first example, in, uh, there's a, uh, examples of sacrificial giving, the first of which we read in 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, where it says, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in, in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They gave out of deep poverty more than they could afford. They gave sacrificially. And then we've talked about this one in the past, the widow's might. This is where the widow goes to the temple. She's, all she's got is two small coins. And Jesus uh, takes note because she gives those two small coins and puts them in, uh, puts them in the offering. It's all she had. And, and Jesus takes note of that. And, and the message there is, is that it's not about the amount. It was the sacrifice. You see, the, the millionaire that puts the $300 in there, Jesus wouldn't have taken note of it because there was a sacrifice. That was such an abundance that that was minimal to that person. So it's, it's about what's behind it. It's the attitude of the heart, not so much the amount. But what is it doing to you? What, what is taking place in you? Are you having to let go of your will and put it in God's hands and say, I'm trusting you because I'm putting in sacrificially? That's the point. So see, it doesn't come between you and a preacher or a pastor. That, that's where it just comes between you and God because he's the one that matters if he takes note. Doesn't mention when priests, doesn't matter. They, they scoffed. You know, they may scoff at the two small coins or not even take note, but Jesus took note. So then um, the, the second example is in proportional giving. We should give in proportion to our level of prosperity. Paul said this, listen, in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So that when I come, no collections will have to be made. In other words, if everyone is giving what is appropriate in accordance to what God has done for them, then there's no reason to take up an offering. When we started this whole uh, vote for a building project, and, and you know we're meeting tomorrow, the advisor team and I are meeting tomorrow, we're going to get some forward movement on that, and, and we, we met. You know, I called a couple pastors who I respected, who I knew they'd gone through building projects, and I asked one, I said, tell me, how do you go about leading your folks in the giving part? How, how do you do, you know, in a lot of churches they call it a capital campaign, or how do you lead that? He says, I've never done one. I said, what? Well, I know you built a you know, million and a half dollar building. He goes, I regularly teach on giving and tithe, and my, I've led my people that way, and we just don't have to fundraise because the people respond. Do you know that if, if churches are building in accordance with and in line with their growth, that if the whole church tithe alone, not even talking about offerings, most churches statistically would be able to do it without ever raising money. So the thing you don't like about those campaigns where they're living, guess what? If we all obey Scripture, we don't have to listen to it. 
Because we've already done what we're supposed to do. There's no need for it. Saves the pastor a lot of time. There's my little plug. No. <laughs> no. But we give an amount determined by the level of our financial prosperity. You know, the tithe, we use a percentage. And, and, and why would God do that in his infinite wisdom? Well, maybe God's smart enough, even though he takes care of the bills, maybe he just ha- knows all the calculations. How It just always seems to work out. If everybody's giving 10%, the church always has what it needs to be able to operate and minister to your family and those who you want to see brought in. Your sisters, your brothers, your cousins, those you want to know the Lord, the, the resources it takes to be able to do outreaches and all that, all that, God's wisdom knows that that's how the church needed to operate. The tithe and the offering is not something man created. It's straight from Scripture. That's how it ended up in the church. So we not only give the money when our in- income we give money when our income is set, but when our income also increases. My last uh, couple years at Walmart, I got pulled in the office and they said, uh, and we were doing okay. We had structured, you know, been doing Dave Ramsey and paying our bills. And they said, you're getting a 34% increase. And then they got the spatula to scrape me up off the floor, you know. <laughs> but it was, it was huge for us. And, you know, the temptation could have been is like, well, we've been faithful tithing. This is a blessing God brought us. So it's all ours to do whatever. We didn't even, because God had been working our hearts, we didn't skip a beat. Okay, now our tithe goes up. Because God has blessed us, so there's still a portion of that that belongs to him. So the key is proportional giving to the, uh, and the use of a percentage. I, I think it's scriptural, even though we talk about tithe, but I think it will help you. If you can't even see that there's some kind of rhyme and reason scripture for it, let me tell you, it will help you. You know, when, when Jennifer and I made the decision that, hey, listen, we don't always agree when it comes to giving to missionaries, and I, she's wanting to give always more than me, um, you know, we started saying, okay, well, if we set aside some every week, no matter what for missions, then God can speak to our hearts. We can give above that, but we know we're going to be given something. And, and then there's no, there's no decision there because it's already been set aside. So using a percentage or setting, you know, setting a plan is a very scriptural and biblical way to be able to dis- bring that discipline, that godly discipline into your giving. You know, um, <clears throat> let me ask you something. If 10% was the minimum required to run, if we're just going off the premise that God maybe knew that 10% is what it took to run ministry. If 10% was the minimum required to run the ministry in the Old Testament, why would it cost less in the New Testament? I'm going to tell you where I'm going with this in a minute. Because there's a whole other teaching where it takes a biblical truth, but in my mind, in my beliefs, it twists a little bit. And it's a teaching on first fruits, which, which is bringing the first and the best to God. We said it all the way back to Cain and Abel, we know. But, but there are some who would substitute and say, well, uh, the tithe, that's Old Testament. Uh, it says that Jesus came, now we're in a new co- covenant, so the tithe doesn't exist anymore. Now I can just give 10% of my time, or I can give some of my time, or whatever. It doesn't have to be money, it can be this or that. But we saw in the Old Testament that there was different tithes that affected everything, from their livestock to their money to to everything, right? And it had different purposes. When Jesus came, was there any talk or was there any indication that somehow all of a sudden the cost of doing ministry, the cost of living, uh, things changed somehow financially to get the New Testament church started? In fact, you know what we do see? In some cases, the churches were taking all their possessions and putting them in a big pot to make sure everybody's taken care of. It almost went the other extreme. So let me tell you this. Whether you want to buy into the fact that tithe, the 10% is still uh, for the New Testament church or not, let me ask you a question then. What's the advantage of the argument against it? What's behind the argument against it? 
What's the attitude of the heart about trying to do away with that? Why? Because it's a constraint that says, at very minimum, you're going to give 10% to God and keep 90% for yourself. You see, we have to be very careful. It's a slippery slope when, these, when, when, when doctrine comes out and we're hearing some preacher that's getting a lot of people listening and he's saying, God wants you to be wealthy and you know what, tithe, that's old. And, and you know, now, you know, because we'll give more if we don't have any structure, right? If you just do it willy-nilly. How many, is that working out for you? Oh, no, don't raise your hand. But has that worked out for you? Giving God willy-nilly. What I mean is no plan, no thought, just eh, if I feel like it, yeah, if not. I can tell you what would happen to the church if that's how everybody viewed it. I can tell you if biblical tithing went away, what would happen. I don't bring attention to this very much, um, very often, but just to bring it to a serious note, when I stepped in four years ago as a pastor, doing the numbers at the rate that we were digging into the finances to cover just expenses, um, it was possible we wouldn't last a, wouldn't last a couple years. There were some serious things that we needed to pray and do. Did I get in and crack a whip or anything? No, in fact, I don't know that I really preached on giving that first year. It was a lot of prayer, <laughs> a lot of spending time in the office, uh, you know, crying out to God, and, and God moved on the hearts of the people, and things started to turn around slowly. And now we've been in a time where we can actually see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel God's created for us, and we're looking towards a new building. Praise God. So, we don't want to just look at a 10% guideline to limit our generosity to Christ, but more as a guidepost of, hey, look at that as he used it in the Old Testament to support the ministry of the church. He used it to support the poor and the needy. He, he used it to do his work, and, and he let them control the other 90% that really belonged to him anyway. But in times, they gave even more than that by the leading of the Holy Spirit. So... <clears throat> According to church studies, remember that, that statistic I said that most, that the majority only give 2.5%, not 10%? Well, listen to this. Only about 4% of members of churches in the U.S. give 10%. So before, you might be thinking, well, if most people are given 2.5%, are there anybody tithing? Yeah, 4% of the people in church. Only about 30, well, actually, that was membership. So it might be even, if you include everybody who hasn't committed to being members of a church or whatever, it might be even... Uh, further apart but only about 30 to 40 percent of church members even use a percentage guide only about 50 percent of members even knew what percentage of their income they did give it's very difficult to be giving if there's no structure if there's no if there's no adjustment when god prospers you if you don't know that you're you're being diligent with what he's given you and giving back to the lord so let me make another point about uh proportional giving it's important that you work to grow in your giving like you do every other aspect of your Christian life. Some of you will remember we just did a lesson about um, the, the parable God gave about the, the, um, the, the owner who gave the talents to his different servants. Remember, one of them had one talent and he went and buried it so that he wouldn't lose track of it. And then one had ten talents and the other had five. I'm, I'm sorry, the other one had two. I'm sorry, two and five. My number six. And both the others doubled what they had. They'd gone and invested, they doubled. And the correlation was given that that one that buried it and did nothing with it, he did nothing to increase what had been entrusted to him, was considered wicked. You see, God is a God of increase. God is a God of advancement. God is a God of new things and new creations and, and better things and bigger things and, and a new heaven and new earth that will be none of the junk we're dealing with here. 
So why would he entrust you with money and tell you to sit on it like an egg hoping it will hatch one day? He wants you to work to grow it. You work to grow in self-discipline, in love, in faith, and in service. And if your income rises and you were faithful in giving a set percent minimum when it was a previous income, what would the reasoning be for keeping it the same? So this is a tough lesson. It's a tough lesson because from a preacher, it's hard to hear, hey, I've got to mess with my money now because it has very spiritual implications to my walk with the Lord. I'm not telling you my opinions. I'm giving you what the Word of God says. You can decide for yourself. But the the Bible teaches that God owns all our money. We've heard that over and over, but let me give you a couple other examples of Scripture. For example, the Lord says in Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. And David says in Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You know, we may have difficulty with this, but let me just put it in today's terms. Let's say you've got $10,000 and you go down to a bank. You're like, woohoo, I'm going to make sure I don't lose this. And you put it in the bank. Next week, you're going to be meager and you're going to go take $200 out, right? And you go and the teller says, I'm sorry, we can't give you your money. Well, well why? Well, you see, our bank president went out and bought a BMW and he needed your $10,000 for that. You've been like, you thieves, you robbers. That's my money. The agreement is you're a steward of it. I'm entrusting you with it. And, you know, I knew you might make some interest off of it, but I always had the 10000 back to me. You know, maybe there wasn't even interest involved for me, but, but you're supposed to hold it for me. You know, why would we think God sees any different when he says it's all his? He entrusts us with some, and then we go out and squander it. And then he comes to us and says, hey, you know what? There's this orphanage over here that if you invest some of that money I've allowed you to make, then some of those kids will come to know me. Oh my God, I've already spent it all. Or I have plans for it. We're like that bank president that's, that's taken something that's just been entrusted to us and then squandering it. The Lord said in Malachi 3.9, You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. God had cursed Israel's income because they had robbed him of the tithes and he required, that he required and the offerings he desired. Today, ironically, people often rob God of his money because they think they can't afford to give. But let me tell you something, you can afford not to. The great 19th century uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon put it uh, succinctly when he said, many are poor because they rob God. And Jennifer and I have seen this time and time again. I'm just telling you, while we've had our own struggles, we've talked to many folks in situations, God-loving God-fearing people who we respect. But when it comes to the one topic of giving, there's this holdback. Well, you see, we just can't do it because. Hey, don't tell me. You're not giving it directly to me. You're giving it to God. I mean, you know, when I left Walmart, I did have to have something to pay the bills when I left, you know, full-time ministry. But, but listen, I didn't do this for money, so don't try to convince me. But when you look at the Scripture, can you convince God? You convince him that the reason you have is right. This isn't a message to beat us down because we know that God is not a God of condemnation. He's a God of conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts us, which conviction just says, this is where you're at, and it shows you where you need to be, and let's push forward. Let's make a change. Condemnation says, the devil says, let's just keep looking at how bad you mess up and keep you down so you'll keep making the same mistakes. 
So this message is of, of hopefully conviction for you that you don't let the enemy turn into condemnation. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you right now, Lord, with your help, this subject, Lord, next to love, is the most difficult. God, we all resist, even me, because, Lord, our world seems to run everything based on money, on income, on possessions, on status, on, on everything connected to our, our wealth, our lack of. So God, when someone already feels like they're down in that area and, and now a minister is telling the word of God, is telling them, hey, you're robbing God if you're not giving him a portion. It's tough to swallow. We all know. But Lord, it's not about me. It's about your kingdom and what we face beyond this world. So Lord, I pray right now you would uh, convict us where we need to be convicted. You'd, you'd help us, Lord, and guide us, give us wisdom where we need wisdom. And Lord, I pray against any co uh, condemnation that the enemy would try to bring now. In Jesus' name, we love you for your many blessings. And beyond that, Lord, just because of who you are, we give you all the glory and honor and praise. With every head bowed and eye closed, if I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands or anything. I just don't want anybody looking around at this point. I'm just going to ask if you, if the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart now, I don't want you to leave here until you have a conversation with the Lord about it. Whatever you need to put in place between you and Him, whatever discussion you need to have, you may not finish it now, but let's start the conversation so that we won't leave here and let the enemy blind us once again. Let's, let's take a few moments. Amen. Well, I pray that we'll all continue that conversation uh, in our prayer time this week. Um, I want to give God the praise uh, for, for two lives that uh, accepted him as our Lord and Savior today. That means I get to break out the horse trough. As you notice, there's no baptismal back there. So uh, we, we always love that because that, that means that um, this church, what I love about baptism is not just that person make a public confession of faith of what they've already decided, that means we're seeing it, so that holds us accountable to disciple them and to walk with them and support them, right? So uh, I look forward to having that conversation with those folks and us, uh, us getting that planned.